In December 1776, an elderly man huddled in a cave. It was not far from his home, but just far enough away from the hostile troopers that were rummaging through the area who had seized his farm and sacked his mill house. He cringes with any leaf rustle, stick snap, or hoof in the distance. Is it his patriot friends bringing him food? Is it former neighbors, now loyalists, opposed to independence for the American states, seeking to betray his position? Or is it the sound of Her Majesty's redcoats coming to put him in chains? Anyone who came upon the sight of this man, huddled in blankets freezing cold, might not have realized that he was the founder of a new nation, who had, just months before, affixed his name to its founding document, the one we know as the Declaration of Independence. On first glance, John Hart may not appear to be one of the great gentry who had committed his property, his honor, and now it seemed clear, his person to a nation that for the moment existed only on that parchment and not yet in the world of diplomacy. Yet America did exist in the minds of many of his neighbors, the mill workers, militiamen, the farmers, outspoken clergy, and everyday mechanics and hands, who all across the English-speaking part of the North American continent were casting away the seal of the king with great enthusiasm. Yet this sudden cave-dweller was not just a declaration signer and member of the new Continental Congress, he was the highest officer of the legislative body of his former colony, now a state, the Speaker of the Assembly of New Jersey. That body was still meeting where he could sneak out and muster enough hidden assemblymen for the fledging new state. He still led New Jersey and chaired the Committee of Public Safety for the state's defense. John Hart is not a man that we know much about. He's not one of the names we hear about in history class. But his choice for all of these roles at the time was not surprising. Honest John, as he was called, was a farmer and a fairly recent vintage, a large landowner and mill owner, but was known to most as the local judge, fair man, settler of disputes, and a helpful community member who had donated a substantial part of his land for a church for Baptist, though he was a Presbyterian himself, and who donated his property for use by the Continental Army and would have a camp on his property. He was not necessarily a national leader. He was no Hancock. He did not have all the fame that would attach itself to a Samuel or a John Adams. He was a local political, yet he had no doubt about the great national question. From the beginning of the conflict between the colonies and the mother state, he had participated in both the Stamp Act and Tea Act protests. And as he gathered New Jerseyans to the cause, he rarely lost an election to a position that he sought. Now in his nation's first winter, he had no choice but to hide in the frigid darkness. General Howe had invaded New York. General Washington's Patriot Army was unable to resist and was now retreating through New Jersey. There's no way to be sure what the British would do with declaration signers at the time of his hiding. But this is known by signing, he gave special attention to himself. The Hessians, German allies of the British, and loyalists in the area had invaded Hunterdon County, New Jersey, and looted his farm and mill. He remained far in the rock house, still to this day preserved as John Hart's cave. But at least Hart was able to hide. One of his fellow signers and assembly members, Richard Stockton, was returning from a trip to review troops in New York when he would meet his fate. Stockton was a wealthy landover from Princeton, and he went to check on his wife and family before departing on more revolutionary war business. Loyalists were waiting for him. In the dead of night, they dragged him from his bed, took his property, and delivered him to the British Army. All this just a few months after putting his name to pen in a document declaring a free nation. 
He had signed his safety away, and now it seemed the British might take it. That's not exactly what the British did, however. They offered him a chance to make everything all right with his majesty if he just recanted. General Howe, now commanding the British forces in America, had actually been a Whig in Parliament, and that meant he was opposed to coercion as a member of that body. But now, as general, he was following orders to crush the American rebellion. Yet, he decided to offer the signers a chance. He had written a proclamation offering protection papers and a full and free pardon to those willing to remain in peaceable obedience to their king. It was offered to Stockton. Stockton refused. Thus, he was marched to Perth Amboy, where he was put in irons, brutally treated as a common criminal and fed bread and water. Bread and water. We should think about that, because one pitcher's nice, soft wonder bread and the clear, cool liquid that comes from our modern-day taps. Not likely. It was moldy or stale bread and unhealthy water, and not given out that often. Conditions in prisons were poor. Thousands of Americans would die in British prisons and ships during the war. With Stockton's continued refusal, he was moved to prison in New York, where he was subjected to freezing cold weather. After five weeks of brutal treatment, Stockton, through some intervention by Washington, was released on parole, but his health was ruined. And that's not all. His estate, Morvan in Princeton, was occupied by General Cornwallis during his imprisonment. His furniture, all household belongings, crops, livestock, were taken or destroyed by the British. His library, one of the finest in the colonies, was burnt. That's something, too, that sounds easier on paper to deal with, right? Oh, it's some... Some cows, a couple of pigs, right? Some books. Well, books were highly valuable items, and cows and pigs were actually a family savings. So when you think about that sacrifice, you need to think about your bank account, your 401k, your stock portfolio, gone. But Stockton was released after giving his word of honor not to meddle anymore in American affairs during the war. He did not recant independence. Allegations made by even other signers of the Declaration were that Stockton had recanted and actually joined the British and was under Howe's protection. Yet Howe released letters that said no signer had recanted, only inferiors. Records seem to indicate that Stockton's health was poor right after his imprisonment and never got better. Two years after his parole from prison, perhaps as a result of ill health, he developed cancer of the lip that spread to his throat. He was never free of pain until he died in 1781, prior to the Yorktown victory. That meant that Stockton did not live to see fellow signer Thomas Nelson of Virginia play his part in that great battle and make a legendary sacrifice. Nelson was a member of Virginia's House of Burgesses in the state convention who, at early as 1775, introduced a resolution for organizing a military force in Virginia separate from the British crown. That was a big step and obviously placed the colony of Virginia in opposition with the mother country. Thus, he had no qualms about declaring for independence when he was sent by his fellow conventioneers to go from Williamsburg to Philadelphia for that specific purpose. Go and create a new nation. Nelson was in ultimate command of the Virginia militia through most of the Revolution and, at the time of the Battle of Yorktown, was governor of Virginia. As his troops joined those of Washington and the French, it became clear that the enemy general, General Cornwallis, was using Thomas Nelson's house as a headquarters. According to accounts, without hesitation, Nelson told the artillerist to fire on his own house. 
Now, I should say in the interest of solid historical methodology that the particular story, like many of the stories about the signers, has not been fully documented. Whether he told Washington, whether he told Lafayette this, whether he told a group of French artillerists this, whether he offered five guineas to anybody who could hit his house. We don't know in the way that we'd like to know things, but he was in control of the Virginia militia, he was an important person, he was at the battle scene, and his house was going to be under attack. I'd give him the benefit of the historical extrapolation. They had some role in making a decision about that. These three stories reveal just some of the sacrifices of the men who signed the document, the Declaration of Independence. They were not superheroes, though they were significant leaders of their day, many of them. They didn't always do the things that people said they did then or that we say they did now. We don't need those chain emails with fantastic stories about the signers of the Declaration that cannot be proven in order to salute these men. We can acknowledge that sometimes in patriotic fervor stories are distorted. We can acknowledge that many tens of thousands gave the supreme service and sacrifice in the Revolutionary War and also suffered greatly, and that we should remember them as well. And we should know all of the battles of the very long war that is the American Revolution not just Saratoga and Yorktown. Yet it is also clear that we should know more about these men who signed than we do. And their names should be more familiar than they are. My name is Bruce Carlson. In addition to this project, they sign the signers of the Declaration. I host a podcast you might know called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. It's on iTunes and it's on the website www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. It's a lot different from what I aim to do here. I talk about current politics and history. It's not what I'm going to do on this cast. In this cast, I hope to give you the stories of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. And here I should note, I have no official qualifications to do so. I'm not a history professor or teacher. Just an avid book reader, library visitor, curious mind. There are many people who are more qualified than me. Yet, no one has adequately done such a podcast on the signers that I could find searching and podcast technology has been around for some time. And so, I will. My mandate here is low. If I can give you just some more information about the signers than you had before, I'm happy. If I can encourage you to go read more on your own, I fulfilled my mandate. And so with that introduction, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. This opening phrase that has inspired, if not always enforced, freedom in America was an inspiration to countries all around the world. A glance at the signatures on the page of the document tells us much about the signers. Obviously, there is the famous signature of Boston shipper John Hancock, with the swirly K at the end and the rendering underneath, a circle in which we can clearly see an H, repeating the H in his last name, almost a little logo that a modern-day ad agency would be proud of. Benjamin Franklin also shows the same flourish underneath his name. Caesar Rodney's underscore just explodes in a way that says, you can tell a lot by a signature. And there are other signatures with underfooting, but less than the ones mentioned. Francis Lewis and George Clymer's gentlemanly script. Abraham Clark seems to just overcompensate with this bouncy underscore equal to the size of his name. Then there are the very clean and legible, if plain, signatures of Carter Braxton, John Morton, and John Adams written without flourish, the kind you might expect today. The simple and tight signature of Robert Treat Payne, the dissolving name of John Haywood, the tiny but clear letters of Philip Livingston, Samuel Huntington, Francis Lightfoot Lee, and the big, bold letters of Thomas Jefferson, James Wilson, George Wythe, 
the weak letters of Stephen Hopkins certainly reflecting his medical condition, and that squiggle of a thing that upon closer inspection is William Floyd. What is the significance of these signs? Now, I'm not engaging in graphology, and I don't mean to read too much into the signatures alone, but the most significant part of the signatures is the unmistakable mark of the owner. They're not the same as names laid in type. There are people behind each one. If all that was required was to simply list the men who supported the document above, I just have someone set the type. But these are the signatures of the men in their own hand, in ink writing it. An 18th century commitment in the extreme. Now, initially, no commitment like that was made. Initially, there wasn't a declaration at all. What would become the Declaration of Independence started with a very less vivid motion on the floor of the Continental Congress, not on July 4th, but on June 7th, 1776. The motion was not more than 80 words, just three paragraphs, and it was made by Richard Henry Lee of Virginia Planter, who was a member of a famous family of Virginians going back to the colonial days, whose descendant would become the future Confederate general, and whose younger brother would also serve in Congress and be a signer himself. Lee had been a member of the House of Burgesses in Virginia for 30 years, quite a long career of being a public representative of people. He was an early organizer in Virginia against the Stamp Act, and one of those patriots who went national first as he started to reach out to the other colonies and build an association. Meeting this way, John Adams was his good friend. Lee was known by many throughout the colonies in a way that he is not known enough now. He later became an anti-federalist and was the author of the Federal Farmer Letters, opposing the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. Once ratified, though, he participated in the resulting government and was elected a U.S. Senator from Virginia. In that arena, his name lent credibility to the anti-federalist and anti-administration factions. He was certainly well known in his day. If we followed the normal idea of naming bills after legislators in the House and Senate, right, you know, Graham Rudman, McCain Feingold, things like that, why shouldn't Lee be the most famous founder? After all, it was Richard Henry Lee and not any of the better-known founding fathers who stood up and made the first motion for independence. I suspect it's because his action was not that radical, considering what was going on in the continent outside Independence Hall. Indeed, towns across the nation, perhaps as many as 90, had already declared independence. In a referendum, 50 towns to one opposed. The hamlets of Massachusetts voted that way. Militia companies in Pennsylvania and counties in Maryland and other states had already issued independent statements. So had the Committee of Mechanics in New York City. Perhaps... It was Thomas Paine, though, in his famous best-selling pamphlet, Common Sense, who urged it most simply and effectively. It is absurd, he said, for a continent to be perpetually ruled by an island. Before this declaration occurred, Virginia as a state had already declared its independence, and they sent delegates to Philadelphia to do the same for the nation. North Carolina and Rhode Island had also instructed its delegates to vote for independence now. While there was opposition as well, John Adams said at least a third of the country was opposed vehemently to independence. For a good many, the idea was Congress get on with it already. For some of the state's delegates represented in Independence Hall, it was no debate. Without instructions, the delegates of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Georgia were already disposed to break off with the motherland. They were in persuasion mode, trying to get the other delegates to join with Lee's motion. Keep this in mind. 
British troops were already in America. Shots had already been fired, including the famous shots around the world fired at Lexington and Concord. That was a year ago. Americans had made an attempt to seize Quebec already. The Congress had voted for a declaration of arms, saying, Our cause is just for arming against British military presence in America. And they'd already made entreaties to King George, which were ignored, sometimes politely so, but ignored nonetheless. Most recently, King George III had declared diverse, wicked, and desperate persons to be in a rebellion in America and sent troops. But that wasn't all. Word had reached America. Something was coming. A large fleet and tens of thousands of soldiers, including Hessians, imported as mercenaries. It was, according to John Adams, a confederation of crowned skulls and numbskulls of Europe to crush human nature. It was timely, thought, to go through the mechanism of independence so that the new nation could gain money and form allegiances with France and Holland. Other countries wouldn't meddle in England's internal affairs unless they declared independence. They cannot expect any help while they're still considering themselves subjects of the king. There was support for these motions, but it was thought by many of the delegates that something stronger was needed. They should do something a little more formal, something befitting this chamber. And as the document itself said, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Delegates wanted to send the king and parliament a message, to be sure, and to reach out to the other nations of the world, as we mentioned, France, Holland, Spain, Russia, Sweden. They had their own American minds to convince. And, and this is often a forgotten audience, the Declaration was reaching out to popular opinion in England itself. Just because His Majesty was sending troops, and His Majesty's government was sending troops, did not mean every mill worker or mechanic in London, nor many a Whig country earl, was disposed to send troops to America to crush this rebellion. Maybe they could turn opinion in the mother country. A committee was formed to write more of a declaration of the reasons they were seeking independence. John Adams, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson as well as names you don't hear as much, Roger Sherman and Philip Livingston, was formed in order to write such a document. It was decided Ben Franklin and John Adams decided to let the young Virginian Thomas Jefferson write it. Franklin was famous, but he admitted to being too tired, and Jefferson was this new young force and was the best writer of the bunch, they all thought. In 1774, he had authored A Summary View of British Rights in America which was one of the first published works to create a framework for independence, a concept that Americans held title on the land they were on, not a lease. There was another reason. 33-year-old Jefferson was more engaging and likable than Adams, who often got into fights with other members. Anything Adams wrote might be dead on arrival, would be suspected and unpopular, so he himself said to Jefferson. Besides, Adams was busy. He just got the job of heading up the War and Ordnance Board with British ships on the way, so... Let Jefferson write it. Later in his life, John Adams would regret not becoming the author of the Declaration himself and allowing Jefferson to enjoy, as he said, the coup of theater and to take the sideshow, as he called it, the fame, which being the author of that document brought him all around the world and in American politics. From Adams' account, this writing was not a big deal, no more than two or three days. Yet, it was... Difficult for Jefferson, somewhat. The quarters Jefferson lived in Philadelphia were too noisy. This was a busy American town in the late 1700s. There were cobblestone streets and lots of horses and people around. 
making noise. So Jefferson accepted an offer from the Graff family, who had a house in Philadelphia that was a little more off from the bustle, you know, and the carriage noise, a bit more trees and property to take their guest bedchamber. And so there, with some break to receive Franklin Adams or other visitors, stopping to play the violin, sip some Madeira wine, Jefferson began scratching pages of his pen. When in the course of human events, dot, 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 writing the declaration passages that we all know now, substituting them with other passages, coming up with more vibrant language, a robust list of charges against the monarch. It was a radical document, and he wrote it with tremendous force. In doing so, he consulted with the works of Thomas Paine, Patrick Henry, the Virginia Declaration of Rights that had been written in the same year by George Mason, and sounds real close that all men are by their nature equally free and independent, and have certain inherent rights of which, when they enter into a state of society, they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty, and the means of acquiring, possessing property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety, all part of George Mason's document. And he looked at many other documents in composing his work. On June 21st, after Jefferson had finished a draft and incorporated some changes from Adams, Jefferson had a copy delivered to Franklin uh, with a cover note. Will Dr. Franklin be so good as to peruse it and suggest such alterations as his more enlarged view of the subject will dictate? Franklin made only a few small changes, but one of them was resounding. Using heavy backlashes, he crossed out the last three words of Jefferson's phrase, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, and changed it to read, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Why? The scientist doctor was invoking his own close friend, David Hume. Hume had distinguished between synthetic truths that described matters of facts, you know, the sky is blue, and analytic truths that are self-evident by virtue of reason, definition, logic. Not the only way of viewing the world in all of uh, philosophy. There's a lot of philosophy that's occurred since then, but if you're going back to 1776, Hume was a pretty modern way of thinking. So when he chose the word sacred... Jefferson had suggested, intentionally or unintentionally, that the principle in question, that we're all created equal, was an appeal to religion. But that's an appeal that the king also made, and an appeal which might subject to interpretation by clergy in just endless battles. By changing it to self-evident, Franklin made a Hume-like statement. It's logical that human beings are free, and you can figure out it's true. We hold that you know it's true, that it's logical that all men are created equal. And just to show that he wasn't taking religion completely out of it, they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The Continental Congress spent three whole days taking a pen to Jefferson's work, making 89 changes, so much so that Ben Franklin would have to console his younger friend and delegate about dealing with changes made to one's work. Jefferson's language blaming the slave trade on King George was removed by Southern delegates. But they didn't just stay with those big issues. They sliced up his language, too, acting as if Jefferson was the most verbose soul on the planet. King George's unremitting injuries and usurpations became repeated injuries and usurpation. When Jefferson said inherent and unalienable rights, just unalienable rights would do. Thank you, Thomas. When he wrote, he kept among us in times of peace standing armies and ships of war, that became just standing armies. As if ships of war were okay? When Jefferson wrote, We submit these facts to a candid world, that stayed, but the passage afterward, to the truth of which we pledge to fate yet unsullied by falsehood, that was crossed out by the Congress. Perhaps that one was a good call. Isn't that just kind of like, and we mean it? 
Jefferson was angry by these changes, enough that he sent the Congress version of the Declaration and his original handwritten version to Richard Henry Lee and asked if it was not the most maligned document in history. And Lee, understanding his role as a consoler here, said, absolutely, it is the most maligned document in history. It's mangled. But there is enough good in the thing to survive the cookery. Well, when this process was completed, the vote was taken and... On July 2nd, the amended Declaration of Independence was approved and the United States of America became an independent nation. It took effect immediately. So, on July 2nd, America was born. Indeed, John Adams said, From here out in history, we will remember July 2nd with bells, guns, and illuminations from one end of the continent to the other. He was right about the ceremony, but wrong about the date. Just one of several predictions that Adams would make wrong. He said that no one would build a statue of him. And on that he was wrong. There are several, though not that many. Nice one at Boston University. We don't celebrate July 2nd. We celebrate July 4th. Why? Well, that's the date printed on the Declaration. The day it was printed, endorsed in set type, with two people referenced. John Hancock, President of Congress, and Charles Thompson, Secretary of the Congress, and a Philadelphia independence activist. They did not put their pen on this document at all, and in any case, names of legislative officers is not in and of itself an endorsement. It's only certification of the actions of the body. July 4th, it was sent to the printer, John Dunlap of Philadelphia. He was the official printer of Congress. His wife was niece to Ben Franklin's wife. Always helps. Later, he'd get the Constitution printing job, too. In addition to doing all this printing, he also joined the cavalry in defense of Philadelphia during the war. But Dunlap started laying the type, and by the 9th of July, 200 copies were made and sent to the former colonies and now states. This, for a few days before the impact of British vessels in New York, was a heady time. It was read in town squares across the English-speaking continent, church bells ringing, huzzas all around, hats in the air... George Washington had this declaration read to the troops in full voice. All over the nation, the seal of arms of the king were taken down as the document was read. A group on Bowling Green in New York took down a statue of King George III on a horse, and then they severed its head. This wasn't just a symbolic gesture. They needed the lead for bullets. If this were a movie, I would play some dark and foreboding music right now. Because I just described all this good stuff that happened, and now something bad is about to happen. All the self-evident truths printed in printed pamphlets could not stop what was coming to New York. An armada of the largest navy in the world at the time. The New York Harbor was full of 130 warships, more than any Englishman of American birth would have ever seen in their lifetime. And on those ships were 25,000 men ready to reach shore and crush Washington's scrappy army of teenagers and old men. Flush with their victory after the evacuation of Boston, the Americans desired decisive action. Nothing is more sought for by us. Howe would cut the nation in half by sacking New York and cut the supply lines between the two revolutionary incubators, Virginia and Boston. The Continental Congress had no navy, only Washington's thin army on Long Island. They'd driven George Washington's army from Long Island to Manhattan through New Jersey. But instead of backing down, instead of reversing this legislation and saying, okay, let's try to get back into the kingdom, 
this Congress decided a moral boost was needed. So it was not in some foolish period of haste when everybody thought things were going to go well that all of these signers signed the Declaration of Independence and then things went bad for the Patriot cause. It was when things were going bad for the Patriot cause that they decided as a moral boost all the men, not just Hancock, not just the Secretary Charles Thompson, all the men should personally sign this declaration in a show of support. And thus, in August 1776, a good month after the day we celebrate, most, though not all of them, put their names to the paper. The men who signed, 56 of them, are a varied bunch. Some were appointed after July 4th and weren't present on the day it was ratified. A few signed as late as October 1776, months after the original debate. It's not even clear that they were in the room all at the same time. They probably were not. Most were lawyers. A good number were merchants. Few were farmers. Well, the men who signed as a group were generally wealthier than the nation at large. They were not all the wealthiest men in the country. They were generally more educated than the American public. The most common trait that these signers share is that they were all active in politics in the 1760s and 1770s in colonial legislatures. And they were good politicians. Many of them had been elected several times. I have no doubt that this would be a charming bunch. The majority of them extroverts, not all of them, but most friendly folks. Without parliamentary procedure, it might have been difficult to imagine anyone getting a word in edgewise with a group of these guys. To give you some sense, in the modern era, what was probably going on then, the British government at the time of the signing had something like a 30 to 40% approval rating in the colonies. There are many areas that were loyalist enclaves, particularly the middle of the country, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. It went up, it went down, depending on what events had transpired. They were the classic big central government, and running against that was good politics in the 1760s and early 1770s. It was so good that many who left the Continental Congress because they refused to sign the document were easily replaced by others who would. But from that common bond, being politicians opposing the various British tax acts, they were different types of people. There were famous men among them, Benjamin Franklin and John Witherspoon, local politicians like John Hart or James Smith, one of the richest men in the colonies, Richard Morris, William Paca, Drs. Benjamin Rush, Josiah Bartlett, Matthew Thornton, former seaman William Whipple, Robert Tree Payne, the country lawyer John Penn, the elderly Stephen Hopkins, the tobacco farmer Thomas Stone, the only Catholic signer Charles Carroll of Carrollton the patriot rabble-rouser we all know, Sam Adams, and his brother John, George Reed, Delaware politician who was against independence, so were his constituents, but signed since everyone else did. Two of them would become presidents. Others would end up in debtor's prison. Few were captured. Several lost their properties due to the revolution. Some lost sons. Several of them would ten years later meet in the same hall to debate a more powerful central government with a constitution. Others would oppose that constitution vehemently, and still others among this group would be compromisers between those two factions. Many of them would become governors in their own state. Three would become vice president. Others would make fortunes. Still others would be ruined. Some would join in the lively partisan politics of early America. One would be impeached. One was lost at sea. One would die in a duel. And yet another would live to see the invention of the railroad. Despite Dr. Franklin's famous line, as they were signing, we should all hang together or surely we'll all hang separately, no one was hung by the British in actuality. It's not to say there wasn't punishment doled out. As we continue this podcast, we will tell their stories. 
If you like this podcast I'm doing here, you may like my podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, which is available on iTunes or at the website, myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com.